Well, good morning, friends. Uh, I want to say welcome to those here at our 930 Cornerstone service. Welcome to those upstairs uh, at the Well Cafe. And also welcome uh, to those who are watching online this weekend. If we have not met, my name is David. I, I often forget to welcome those who are worshiping online. So I want to specifically say that on a weekend like this, where we have a four-day weekend and some people are out and people tell me they watch online. I mean, again, at least they tell me. So hello to you uh, worshiping uh, online. Uh, we are in the second weekend of this series, uh, Be Brave, and uh, I will give you a little uh, behind the scenes, uh, if you will. Whenever we have a four-week sermon series, what it often is, is one sermon in four parts. We just give it to you piece by piece because you wouldn't last two hours, right? Okay? Uh, and I wouldn't either. So we are really uh, just moving forward with where we were last week. So if you missed last week, uh, we started with this idea that uh, the, the idea of a brave life is a meaningful life. It's actually a life uh, that we all want to live. And, and we looked at a few other words just to kind of expand our thinking about bravery, that to be brave is to be courageous and fearless, heroic, bold, daring, audacious, unfair flinching and unafraid. And again, this is the kind of life that, that I would suggest we all want to live. We want others in our lives to see us living a life like this, and yet we often find ourselves shrinking back from that life. And last week we looked at uh, really what I think is the number one reason that we do that, and that is that when those moments present themselves to us, we often find ourselves thinking that someone else will do what I am unwilling to do. The gap that will be created because uh, of my own inaction, someone else is going to fill that gap. Someone else will be willing to do what I am unwilling to do. And there's lots of reasons why we think this. Uh, sometimes, though, we don't often like to admit it to ourselves. Sometimes the reason that we shrink back and we don't act when we know that we should is we just don't want to. At the end of the day, our hearts just say, no, I don't want to do that. That's not something I'm interested in doing, even in the instance of those things that we know are important. We know someone needs to do something here. There's a, there's a need that needs to be met. Someone needs to respond. Even in those instances, we find ourselves saying, ah, but I don't want it to be me. I'd rather somebody else uh, uh, step into this moment and, and act in, in the way that, that, that I know someone needs to act. We shrink back and, and we say no. And so uh, this week and next week, what we're looking at are two areas where those who have said yes often find themselves later saying no. And here's what I mean by that. I mean people who have said yes to Jesus as Lord of their life. Uh, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to give you everything in my life. If you've said yes, uh, th then you have surrendered your life to Jesus. We, we, we proclaim that again and again in the songs uh, that we sing. And yet those who have said yes often later find themselves saying no. And again, we're going to look at two common areas where uh, two marks of discipleship where, where we find ourselves at times saying, ah, that's just something I'm not, I'm not willing to do. So if you're here today and you are someone who has not yet said yes, well, the first thing you should know is you're sort of off the hook for everything that I'm about to talk about, okay? But at the very least, you, you'll hear an understanding of why Christians do what they do. Some people who you may be in relationship with and you may see them living in quite strange ways, today will be an understanding. But for those who have said yes, we're looking at, at some, one of the ways that we're, that we're challenged. And so if you have your Bible, I wanna encourage you uh, to look at Exodus chapter three is where we're gonna be today. 
Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible with you, you can find Exodus 3 on page 89 in the blue Bibles that we have in all of our worship spaces. Just a few words of context for you before I read uh, some, uh, some passages from Exodus 3 and Exodus chapter 4. We're looking at the life of Moses, and as you may know, Moses was born in Egypt. Uh, he was born during a uh, specific time, an important time in the life of the Israelite people. What we learn in Exodus chapter 1 is that the community of Israelites living in Egypt, really a refugee community, a community that has come to Egypt because of a famine that was generations before, they've grown so large that the Pharaoh has become concerned about the size of that community. And so in response, Pharaoh does two things. He enslaves the Israelites, and he decrees that all of the male uh, boys born to the Israelites are to be killed. So when Moses is born, uh, they're living under that decree. His mom hides him for as long as she can. She eventually places him in a basket in the Nile River with the hope that someone will rescue him. Someone will save him and perhaps even raise him as their own child. And that dim hope is actually realized. Uh, one of the daughters of Pharaoh rescues Moses and raises him as her own child. So Moses, the Hebrew, the Israelite, grows up in the house of Pharaoh. When he becomes a young man, he comes upon two Egyptians who are abusing one of the Israelite slaves. And Moses, uh, perhaps in a, in a young, uh, impulsive way, he responds by killing the Egyptians who are, again, abusing uh, the Israelite. And, and, and in response to this, Moses ends up leaving Egypt. He, he completely abandons the life uh, that, that he had lived. Uh, he, he is worried about his crime being discovered. He travels to a distant country uh, and he builds a new life. Uh, he meets and marries a woman named Zipporah. Uh, he has a child. Uh, and all of that is what leads up to chapter three and this uh, very mysterious encounter that, that Moses has. Moses is a shepherd. He's out with his flocks. He's doing what he does every single day, probably passing uh, in, in the same area that he passes every single day. But again, he has this strange experience where he comes upon a bush that is burning, but the bush is not being consumed by the fire. Uh, and out of the bush, he hears, Moses, Moses. And Moses does the only thing that he can think of. He says, here I am. And then a voice from the bush, this is verse 5, says this, Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites, verse 9, has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And here's the first thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice that Moses knows that everything that God has just said is true. He knows it from firsthand experience. This isn't a rumor that has somehow made its way to the distant country in which he is living. Moses has seen this up front. 
He knows that what God is saying is true. He knows that the Israelites are living in misery. He knows they're suffering. It's, it's what had led to him having to leave behind the life that he had had. He knows that everything that God is saying is true. And we can expect that Moses is probably thinking, yeah, somebody needs to do something about this. This is a problem. I've seen it firsthand. They're suffering. Then we get to verse 10 where God says, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And then the conversation kind of changes because uh, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that, that it is I who sent you. When you have brought them out of the land, you will come back to this mountain and you will worship them here. Moses said, well, suppose I go to the Israelites. Let's just say that I do what you're asking me to do. And I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What should I say? And God says, tell them I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. Of course, at this point, Moses is thinking, well, well, that really clears it up. Uh, chapter four, verse one, Moses says, well, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? And they say, the Lord did not appear to you. And then in response, God gives to Moses two signs that he can use to, uh, to validate the claim that God had appeared to him. And, and then we get to verse 10. Now Moses has one more thing that he wants to make sure God is aware of. Uh, he says, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. Which is interesting, it's kind of Moses saying, over the course of the last five minutes, I have not become this eloquent, wonderful leader that you may think that I am. I just, this is one more thing, God, you need to make, I want to make sure you're aware of, I'm not exactly qualified for this. God's response is, well, I gave you your mouth, I will give you the words. And then we get to Exodus 4, verse 13, Moses finally says this, pardon your servant, Lord, Please send someone else. Now, I share that with you for two reasons. The first is, if you are someone who has said yes, and you have later found yourself saying no, I want you to know that you're not alone. You're in good company. I mean, you may know the rest of Moses' story. He will become this incredible leader over Israel, but his whole story begins with a no. Please send somebody else. That's the first reason I want you to, to, to hear this story is that if you've ever found yourself there, you're not alone. Whether it's in regard to what we talk about this week or, or in regard to what we look at next week, you're in good company. The second thing I want you to see is the way this conversation unfolds between Moses and God is often the exact same way it unfolds in our conversations with God. I mean, we really think out the excuses that we offer. I mean, I mean, we, have, we, we know that these are the reasons why this is not gonna work and, and, and we offer those to God. This, uh, here's what you may not know, God. This is not quite uh, what I'm up for. We wanna make sure that, that God is aware that we are not, we, we don't have the skill to do what God is asking us to do and yet we still feel God's spirit moving in us to, to respond in a particular way and we, we share another excuse but, but, but the movement of the spirit is still there in our life and, and we often find ourselves at the place just like Exodus 
4.13 where we say, God, I have one card left to play. Here it is. I don't want to do it. (laughs) Please send somebody else. This is not something that I am willing to do. At the end of the day, God, I just don't want to do it. And again, we're looking at two areas in our life. Uh, in the life that we live as disciples of Jesus, two marks of Christian discipleship, where, where we, after saying yes, we, in, in our struggle, in our fear, whatever it might be, we find ourselves saying no. And today, what we're looking at is the call to live a financially generous life. Now, Hearing that, here's what I know what will happen in the coming week, because it happens every time that I talk about this. I'm going to get an email from someone saying, why'd you talk about that again? I might get an email from somebody saying, that's all the church ever talks about. All the church ever talks about is money. Why does this subject uh, uh, keep getting brought up? I I will, maybe someone will will, will share with me, you know, this is something that's really personal to me and I really don't think that uh, that the pastor should be talking about that. I mean, I've, I've heard all of those things and I'll probably hear some of that this week. You may feel some of those things right now because this is maybe an uncomfortable conversation for you, but the the title of the series is Be Brave, okay? So I'm gonna try to be brave and talk about something that maybe is a bit uncomfortable for us uh, for, for a couple reasons. I, I want to, uh, I, wanna, I wanna make sure that you understand what it is that the Bible actually says about generosity and why, it's, why it is so important to our life of faith. How the Bible, looking at two particular practices, how it frames our understanding of the intersection between our faith life and our financial life. How does the Bible speak about that? And then address some of the misconceptions that people have about why this is even talked about in the church, why, why pastors would bring it up, and again, why, why we believe it's important to our life of faith, our life of following Jesus. So here, here's the two practices I wanna talk about first that, that we find throughout the scriptures. The first is the practice uh, that we would refer to as the first fruits. And the idea behind this is whether we're talking about the fruit of a field or the fruit of our labor, or fruit of a business, the fruit that we receive from the work of our life, that we return the first portion of that to God. We'll talk in just a minute about why, why that's a practice that is talked about throughout the scriptures. The second is a way of proportionally returning to God Uh, a a part of the harvest that we have received, a part of the resources that God has given to us in our life, it's called the tithe. And the tithe means the tenth. So if the harvest that we bring in is 10 apples, we give the first apple to God. And these, these two practices are really the foundation of how the scriptures speak about the intersection between our faith life and our financial life. That means as we receive, what we are called to do is to give the first fruit, a tenth of the harvest, back to God. As a way of saying to God, I want you to be first in my life, I trust you with my future, and I want to be more like you. Those are the three things that we say when we practice the first fruits and the tithe. Now, some people have asked me before, well, what if, what if I lost my job? What if I'm not receiving anything? Well, again, first fruits and the tithe. As you receive, you give. If you don't receive, 
Well, there's nothing to give. That is the way the principle works in our life. It's a disciplined way of living into this conviction. God, I want you to be first in my life. I want to trust you for my future, and I want to be more like you. But here's the misconception. Here's what people often misunderstand uh, in terms of hearing this in the context of church or thinking about this in the context of their faith life. This is really, really important. And if you miss this, you'll miss everything. This will never make sense to you if you don't understand this idea, which is that God doesn't need your money. Do you know that? God doesn't need your money. God doesn't even need you. Because God is God. God is not poor. God is not devoid of power. God's ability to fulfill God's purposes for the world are not dependent on our individual response to God because God is God. Psalm 24, one says it this way, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. In other words, this is not our world and we are blessed that God sometimes visits us in our world. We live in God's world. So God doesn't need our money. Well, then why, you might ask, why, why is this a part of our faith life? Why is this something that God would ask of us? And the, the answer to that question, there's, there's two things I want you to hear today. Again, critical for understanding why this practice is so important for the life of faith. The first is, there is nothing of greater significance you'll ever experience in your life than participating in what God is doing in the world. Nothing's ever gonna come close to that. Nothing will ever be more meaningful, nothing will ever be more significant in your life than the opportunity that you have to participate in what God is doing in the world. And when we give, we are investing in God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Nothing's better than that. Nothing will bring you more joy than that. Nothing will have more lasting eternal significance in your life and the world to come than your opportunity to participate in what God is doing in the world. So why do pastors talk about money? Well, here's one reason why. Because we believe that God wants to use us in what God is doing in the world. And one of my tasks and the task of your leadership is to prayerfully consider, God, how would you use us? How would you use us in this community? How would you use us in this region? How would you use us in the work that we are doing in the world? And, and, and then to bring that to you, because again, one of the things that you hear often uh, from me is that everything that we do, we do together. And, and so we give, we share our resources. And what we seek to do is to participate in what God is doing in the world. But here's what you cannot miss as you think about that as a, as a church and what we do together and the life that we live and the, and the mission that we share and the witness that we share in the world. God is either going to use us or God will set us aside because God is going to fulfill God's purposes. We have an opportunity. We get the, we get the chance to participate in what God is doing in the world. But if we as the people of faith choose not to respond, God doesn't sit back and go, well, I guess, guess that's it. 
guess there's nothing else that can be done. Let me show you one picture to illustrate this. Uh, This is from 2015. I had the chance to go to Rwanda. Some of you know that we work with Zoe Ministry. It's about empowering orphans uh, to never need charity again. One of the experiences that we had, we're driving down this road. We look to the side and there's this huge, huge cornfield, about 40 acres. Uh, The government of Rwanda gave this field uh, to this orphan community because they didn't think anything could grow there. 40 acres. Uh, that were just, just filled with this incredible harvest. And I, I had the chance to go there and see that, to see this, this, this land that was, that was empty, that they thought, again, not, nothing's gonna grow there. Uh, and to see what, what these orphans, uh, working with Zoe, were able to do because of your generosity. Now, what if you hadn't given that money? What if, what, if you, what if you as a church family had not made the sacrifices to make, to make that happen? And, and again, most of you, you, you didn't even know about that because you, you didn't get to be there to see, to see that, that cornfield. What would have happened? Would God have given up on those orphans? No, God would have continued doing what God always does, which is inviting the people of God to partner with God. God either uses us or he sets us aside. And so if your idea, if the word that comes to mind when you think about generosity is obligation, I would invite you to exchange that for the word honor. God gives us the honor. God gives us the the opportunity to participate in what God is doing in the world. Here's the second reason. Because in the practice of generosity, it is one of the primary ways in which we come to know God to grow in deeper love with God and to deepen in our relationship with God. So again, if you have this word guilt in your mind, if you think that's the goal uh, of, of the pastor in talking about this particular area of our life, I would invite you to exchange the word guilt for the word relationship. The, word, the, the idea of growing in deeper love of God as you participate in the act that God loves more than anything else, which is giving to you and giving to me and giving to the entire world. Now, if you still think this is crazy, if you still think this is just a crazy way to live, I don't know why anyone would live this way, I want you to know I know what that's like because I used to think it was crazy too. And I want to tell you about one of the experiences in my life that, that uh, began to change my thinking. Some of you heard this story before, but uh, I'm going to share it again. When I, in, in 1985, uh, the Nintendo Corporation released the Nintendo Entertainment System. I know you're thinking, well, how does this connect? But just, just go with me here. So, so this, is, this is a revolutionary moment in the history of video games, okay? Uh, it, 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 it light years ahead, this isn't the Super Nintendo, this isn't the Nintendo 360, this is the original Nintendo, okay? 1985, the world changes forever, all right? Takes, it takes a little while for the Nintendo to make it to North Hillside Drive, where I was growing up, but eventually it did. And it first appeared in Colby's house. So Colby was at the end of the street. He was, he was the early adopter. I mean, he was the one who usually got everything first. Showed up in Colby's house. And of course, very soon after that, it showed up in David's house right across the street. Word traveled down the street to my house. Colby's got a Nintendo. David's got a Nintendo. And at that point, I knew with absolute certainty that everything 
uh, that was going to happen in my life from that day forward, it was dependent on whether or not I was going to get a Nintendo. I needed a Nintendo. And that's what I went and told my parents, not I want one, I need one. My whole future depends on this. I will never ask for anything else of you till I'm 18 years old. You don't ever have to do anything else for me, but I need a Nintendo. And this is what my parents said to me. We don't have the money to buy you a Nintendo. And so as an obnoxious 11 or 12 year old, I went into a season of deep mourning. When I began to question everything about my life, most importantly, I began to question why, why, why do my parents not love me? Why do Colby's parents love him more uh, than, than they love, uh, than my parents love me and uh, all, all those kinds of things. And somewhat, I don't know why these two things connected. I don't even know how this happened. But somewhere in this season of mourning, I found out how much money my parents gave to the church. And do you know that the amount of money they were giving away every single month was how much it costs to buy a Nintendo. It was exact. And remember, all along they'd been telling me, we don't have the money. And then I discovered that they did. (laughs) And every single month they were giving away my Nintendo. And not only that, my dad was the pastor. This was the, this was the income in our house. And so as a kid, I'm thinking to myself, so you have a job and they pay you to do your job and then you give part of the money they pay you to do your job back to your employer. That doesn't make any sense in the world. Why would you do that? But that actually wasn't the question that I asked my dad. The question I asked my dad was this, dad, does everybody do this? Because this sounded crazy to me. Why would anybody do this? Does everybody do this? And this is what my dad said to me. He said, David, it doesn't matter what everybody else does. This is what we do. That was my dad's answer to that question. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what everybody else does. This is what we do. And as a young kid who was still trying to figure out what does it actually mean to be a follower of Jesus? I mean, you, some of you think preacher's kid just you automatically have it. No, you, I'm learning. I'm trying to figure it out. It, I've never forgotten my dad's answer to that question. Doesn't matter what anybody else does. This is what we do. Again, I've shared that story before. And and so this week I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if I actually had my Nintendo with me? Because eventually my parents did affirm their love for me and and I did get a Nintendo. (laughs) And so I texted my mom and said, hey, this week I want to swing by and I need to pick up the Nintendo because my mom, who I love dearly, does not have the capacity to throw anything away, okay? So I was just going to swing by. I was going to pick up my Nintendo and the gun, you know, duck hunt, the whole thing. I was, I was ready to do that. My mom texts me back and she says, I'm sorry. I don't think we have that anymore. She threw away my Nintendo. It was this moment of shock, like what? You, you don't have the capacity to throw anything away, but you threw away my Nintendo. And, and, and what struck me this week, again, I've, I've shared the story many times before, but I'd never thought about it this way, that this thing that used to mean everything in my life, today it means absolutely nothing. And it not only means absolutely nothing to me, it meant absolutely nothing to my mother because she threw it away. And yet I've never forgotten those words that my dad said. This, 
doesn't matter what everybody else does. This is, this is, what, this is what we do. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I've been thinking about the connection between bravery and honesty. And like last week, I just want to invite you to be honest with yourself. You don't have to share this with anybody else. Unless you're married, you should probably talk to your spouse about it. But if this is an area of your life where you found yourself saying no, I want to invite you just to be honest with yourself and ask the question, why? Why? Why is this the place where I've stepped back and said, that's just something I'm not willing to do? Just to think about that question. If, if it's because you've, you've had this word obligation, I'd encourage you to exchange it for the word honor. If, if it's because you've, you've had in your mind the, this, this word guilt, I would invite you to exchange the word relationship. And if you find yourself at that place, maybe this illustration will help you. You've seen the, the young kid on the high dive. You know what I'm talking about? The kid who gets up there for the very first time and then looks over and thinks to himself, oh, I don't want to do that. And they walk back, oh, but I really want to do that. And they just go back and forth and back and forth. I can remember watching my son doing that, just, just looking over, can I really do this? If you find yourself at that place, here's just, here's just my bias, here's, here's just my opinion from my own personal experience. Sometimes it's just time to jump. It's just time to jump. I say, God, I wanna let go of my no. And I wanna say yes. Because I want you to be first in my life. I wanna express in a tangible way that I trust you with my future. And I wanna be more like you. And so if that's where you are, that's my, that's my prayer for you. That you would, you'd have the courage just to, just to jump. Just to jump and exchange the no for a yes. Yes, God. I want to give you everything in my life. I want to follow you in all the ways you call me to follow you. Doesn't matter what anybody else does but this is what I do. Will you pray with me? Loving God, we cannot think about generosity without first thinking about how generous you are with each of us. So today we come to your table to remember again all that you have given, the sacrifice of your son. We think about, Lord, the life that you have given us and the opportunity for eternal life made available to us because of Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray for a fresh understanding of that. And in response, Lord, we pray that you would enable us in acts of courage and bravery to to be generous in return with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.